welcome Manu to the Network Capital podcast. We're doing it in association with Loophole Audio and Plain Crazy. Um, today we're going to dive deeper into your career choices and what you're up to these days. Thank so you for having me. That no, sounds ominous, but I look forward <laughs> to this conversation. Um, why ominous? Well, you know, the, this diving deep into career means that you have to end up talking about yourself, which I don't know if that's a virtue or a vice, but we'll we'll find out by the end of this discussion. Uh, let's see how that pans <laughs> out. But tell us, like, walk me through your career choices. Who are you? That's a tough question to answer in 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 one line. But I'm currently a PhD student, or I'm enrolled for a PhD at King's College London. I used to be chief of staff to the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Indian Parliament till about a year and a half, till 2017. I'm also a writer and historian, so I've written three books, uh, all of which have done well so far. And yeah, so I've got one foot, or rather, you know, I'd need one extra foot really to put into all these three worlds that I've dabbled in. But so far, it's worked out, and you know, I have no no regrets, and everything seems to be going as per pl- as per my plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was school and college like? I'm talking about school and undergrad. What were you... Undergrad was in Pune because that's where I grew up. And I went to this old uh, college there called Ferguson College, which has its associations with Tilak and uh, the runner days of the of the 19th century. And it was this lovely, you know, 65-acre campus, which is a relatively rare thing these days. You don't find colleges like that. And uh, so I did my, my bachelor's in economics over there. I did a second diploma in international relations. And once all of that was done, I went off to London to do my master's in international relations at the Department of War Studies in, at King's College London. And yeah, that's how I ended up in Parliament working with Shashi Tharoor, because I still remember I was on the way back from London after my master's. And in the airport, he, I was boarding the Bombay flight and he was boarding the Delhi flight. And I said, ah, that man, you know, I'm going to write him an email uh, and ask for an internship because I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, so I came back wrote him an email and my CV was pretty empty at that time but he liked the way I wrote he liked my email and then he sent me a message saying you know I really enjoyed your email come meet me if you're ever in Trivandrum and as it happened I was going to Trivandrum the next week so I I walked up from there to wherever he was and it was quite a funny scene because he was coming down a staircase I was going up the staircase and he looked at me and he said you must be Manu go up there's a proper or sadhya like one of those Kerala feasts happening Mm -hmm. eat and then come down and then we'll talk so I went up sat with a bunch of children and ladies and had this huge feast first, went down, sat with them in his car and that's how we finally got talking. And within about 10 days I was in Delhi and starting to manage his parliamentary office in Delhi. So that was the beginning of my career with this whole you know, foreign policy aspect and parliament and all of that. The books were happening simultaneously uh, by then already because my first book I'd started my research at the age of 19. Really? So Yeah, so that was... Already, I think one of my motivations in coming back to, to Delhi specifically was because I'd already done one cycle of research in London as a student at the British Archives. And I wanted to come here and use the National Archives. So I needed to find a job in Delhi. And as it happened, it happened to be with Shashi Zarur, which was a good combination. But yeah, so I ended up j- starting to you know juggle two careers at the age of 21. So you finished, you, you joined Dr. Zarur at 21. And um, what, was the, what was the job like? How did you balance it with writing? You know, the beginning, the if you go to the office now, there's, you know, two separate sections. The team is, I think, nearly a dozen people. It's much bigger. There's a Congress party-related office, and there's a separate, you know, his, his uh, international travels and his diplomatic contacts and his speaking and all of that is handled by the other office. When I started, it was just me and a clerk. I mean, a, a gentleman who's, uh, you know, a middle-aged ex-civil servant in the, in the government. 
and it was just the two of us. So I had I was doing practically everything, and it was great fun because I was doing parliamentary questions, I was helping draft speeches, I was managing schedules and things like that, uh, dealing with ministries, dealing with diplomats, dealing with petitioners because they'd call and they'd want support in getting pensions from the PM, uh, one of the yojanas, and so on. So it was a mixed bag of things. So from nine in the morning till nine at night, there was no room to. Uh, do anything else. You were tied to your desk in that sense, and it was after nine that I could actually sit down and do my writing, which I do till about three in the morning. Which you know, people now make it sound like it's some sort of a big sacrifice or big thing I did at that time. But frankly, I was living in his house, so th- you know the MPs have bungalows where there are outhouses. So he'd given me one of those, and I could always see his study light on till three in the morning. And this was a man who'd already published over a dozen books. This was a man who'd been UN Under Secretary General. He'd been Minister. He was a Member of Parliament, a very charismatic public figure. And he was still slogging it out day in and day out. And you know, waking up in the morning, going to Parliament, coming back, having a diplomatic meeting over lunch, going back into Parliament, delivering a speech there. In the evening, coming out, releasing a book, uh, going out for a seminar, then coming back and doing his own writing. And I thought, if a man can do that with all his success without wasting a moment, if he can do that, then I should. Perhaps you know, follow a similar pattern, and it worked because that was the only way I could finish my my first book. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an interesting concept these days that you shouldn't man- manage your time, you should manage your attention, you mm-hmm. should manage your energy. So when you were doing a nine to nine job, fairly demanding uh, and unpredictable, how did you? What did you tell yourself for the necessary focus that was required to be able to write, research? And I'd love if you tie it back to. The nineteen-year-old <laughs> aspiring author. Yeah, it wasn't as seamless as you know. It can seem in retrospect like a seamless process or whatever, but at the time it did come with its frustrations. You know, your social life does take a beating because you're not going out very much. You're constantly wedded to your work, and you're in your early twenties. That's not a good place to be, especially if you're not an introvert and you have no issues being around people. It's a challenging thing to force yourself to to, to plod through every day and get through so much work. But in one sense, I enjoyed working, so that was one advantage there. And the other was the my book definitely motivated me because I was completely gripped by the story. I was completely gripped by my research, which is why I started at 19. And you know that I knew that I didn't know what kind of book it would eventually become, but I was definitely certain that this was something I wanted to do. And once you have that kind of motivation for anything in life, I think that that takes on an energy and a life of its own and you become an accessory to the energy rather than you consciously deciding uh, how every day or every month or every year is going to pan out so all my career choices because after rashid zarur when he became a minister i left because you know when you become a minister the ias officers come in and they take over the best parts of the job and i was 22 so i would have been relegated to third pa or something like that which at that time i wasn't keen on that because i was running the whole show So then I went back to London, where also I did another cycle of research for my book. Uh, did my gig at the House was of Lords. Was it another Masters? No, uh, I was working. Okay. With uh, Karan Bellamore at the mm. House of Lords. Mm. Uh, then I did that for a year and something, and then I did this BBC gig. They did an Indian history series called Incarnations with Sunil Khilnani. So I was his uh, researcher for that for a while. Right. Then I came back in 2014, took six, uh, did Shashi Tharoor's election campaign, and once the election was over, I took six months off to finish the book, mm. and yeah, rejoined him in 2015. uh and yeah that was that yeah you know we let's go back to 19 again so what was the idea that gripped you and how did it shape your career choices because it seems like an important element it was you know the the protagonist of the book is this woman called setu lakshmi bai who was the last female maharaja of travancore and we live in times where you know power animates so many people right and once you have power it's very difficult to let go and even when it's snatched away people don't know how to deal with loss of power loss of public profile loss of influence because that 
it takes away something you end, you end up feeling hollow or whatever even today you have people in india who you know flaunt their royal titles as maharaja this maharaja that because you know that era is over but that still has some value you still think your identity is tied to something that's already faded and disappeared into the into the night and here was this lady who became maharani of travancore at the age of 5 by her teens late teens she was already navigating court politics and had made herself very unpopular by standing up for her principles or whatever uh, by her late 20 she was in power by her late 30 she was out of power because her nephew had grown up and he took over uh, completely shunted out by her own family and marginalized by her 40s you know late 40s and early 50s independence came so the kingdom she was queen of from the age of 5 no longer existed uh, by the time she was just over 60 the communists came to power in kerala so her palace where she lived with 300 servants suddenly had a communist flag fluttering on top because one night the, the palace servants formed a union and did that and in her 60s late 60s she takes off from trivandrum this place where she's been a queen from as long as for as long as she can remember goes off to bangalore becomes a complete nobody there and spends the next nearly 30 years of her life in obscurity and from a lady who had 21 grand salutes every time she entered and left her capital she goes on to become a grandmother who when she's cremated is in a is in a public crematorium surrounded only by about a dozen members of her own family and for me this was interesting not only because of the personal journey because it tells you so much about leadership it tells you so much about how human beings deal with power with the loss of power with ambition and even the loss of self because you were queen that was all you knew and then suddenly you've now become nobody living in a house in a country far away from the land that you once ruled and how she managed to deal with that loss of power how she managed to deal with that really got me interested in for for reasons of human complexity as well as the the power dynamics that were involved and these power dynamics throughout history you find that they are a constant there are several things whether it's our time whether it was shivaji's time whether it was even before one thing everybody needs is hard power the other thing they need after that is legitimacy to back up the power and the final thing is sustaining the power and power is a fickle mistress at one point or the other it's going to slip out of your hands and the whole thing comes collapsing i'm always stunned by how much literature and history can teach about business management and warfare um we're going to dive deeper in the second part but tell me more about the 19 year how did you stumble into the story I, it is gripping so i can understand why it fascinated you but how did you stumble onto it i was doing a general a uh, lot of reading in terms of you know history as such because i not in school school was pretty boring and they they always destroy history by reducing it to five dates and five empires and uh, three big battles heaven knows why they do it but they do it all the time I, mean, i have some sympathy because you see india is such a complicated diverse country we're practically a continent subcontinent really and trying to condense all of that into a 50 page textbook and present that as indian history is a very daunting task so people are tempted to just reduce it to the bare bones and pretend that this is this is the grand majesty of indian history uh but beyond that i was interested in the story of my ancestors i was interested in the story of where they came from and this you know took me back several centuries because my mother's family and we matrilineal you know, we trace our genealogy through the female line and all of that got me interested in history generally and then in the course of my reading in my teens when i was about 18 i came across this lady and i was like wow this is an interesting story why hasn't anyone written a book about this lady so then i got in touch with the family and then you know once you once you go into something like this it as i said it goes out of your control and it just became uh, a driving force in my life and you know i was in college i was pretty active there was this whole debate society i was the head of the debate society on the cultural committee one of those usual you know uh, things you do in college mm. if you're interested in in or you have a slight amount of ambition or whatever and that's your your way of channeling it but this felt like something that was genuinely challenging this felt like something that would 
that I would leave behind in some way in the yeah. sense that you know you may not exist you never know what will happen what your future holds but if you leave behind a book that lasts for a long time and that for me was a strange kind of mix of wanting to tell the story but also wanting to leave some sort of a mark as though I'm the one who's told the story so it's a mix of everything you know you refer to how how much uh, history can teach us about le- leadership and warfare and all of that why is that the case because all of this is human beings and what are human beings made of they're made of greed of anger of desire of avarice of you know such a bundle of contradictory emotions that nothing that is happening today in terms of broad trends has not happened in the past right. human beings are human beings they've had the same challenges in different contexts but the similar similar challenges similar impulses similar weaknesses and that is something we can learn a lot from and that is why i i weave history through human beings so the historical figures rather than dates and battles because once you start discovering them for the people they were you start realizing that hold on there's a lot we have in common even though several centuries separate us yeah you know if i were to design a history curriculum i would uh, definitely design it people centric like in management you constantly study ceos you study personalities you try and understand what are their leadership principles somehow when you look at history textbooks in order to be objective i feel they try and you know index on dates and yeah. facts although they don't even do a great job of that mm. do you think in future history will be taught differently for example the history project and many other podcasts that you spoke about i think it should be taught differently because mm. you know it there is a lot it can offer us it's got there's so much human quirk even there's so much human eccentricity in history you know there's the kind of records you find the kind of uh stories you discover you know i i you were at the launch yesterday and i remember uh, mentioning this anecdote about how i discovered this uh, letter in the from the 1870s of a man who would go on to be respected and venerated in kerala as the kalidas of kerala great sanskrit scholar and the father of malayalam literature but in this letter which he wrote in his 20s he's talking about smoking weed and enjoying bhang and i was like he's like any 20 year old kid today you know this was uh this man it doesn't take away from his subsequent greatness but this was a man who was doing pretty much what 20 year olds did then and they still do today and that's that's an interesting way of looking at the past suddenly the man becomes humanized rather than some sort of you know demigod sitting on a pedestal in this distant history we can't touch he's become human he's become someone we can connect to and that is a good way to understand his life and his times and the world in which he existed and if history is taught like that then we will be enriched because the other thing is you know the world they say is polarized now right like everyone says polarized everyone's turning it into this black and white debate etc and we always i think every generation feels like our time is some sort of you know major sort of moment in history or whatever frankly it's not you know the world is going to keep spinning things are going to keep changing we're all going to die and in in 100 years we're going to be judged by the future generations of whatever we're leaving behind which happens to be plastic and ugly buildings but i have a different view about what <laughs> we are leaving behind but i see your but, point yeah. but you know there's we we have to also learn to not take ourselves so seriously and one way of understanding that is through history we take polarizing positions because we somehow think that you know this is what it is but if we realize that we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously it's it's more conducive to talk it's more conducive for debate it's more conducive for a healthy exchange there's a lot of that also that history can give us because it tells us that all these people in the past you know these people built grand empires which they thought would never you know they they every time they gave royal grants they said till as long as the sun and moon endure within 2 th- 3 generations their empires were dead and gone and nobody cared about these grants that they'd given because nothing lasts and understanding that i think brings a certain amount of proportion and that proportion we lack in the world no matter what field you look at whether it's politics whether it's public life whether it's even business it's a sense of proportion and that history can lend 
to these larger conversations that we have in our own time. Are you familiar with the Mark Twain quote or the quote ascribed to Mark Twain? History doesn't repeat itself, it but rhymes. it often rhymes. Yeah. So I, I think I've, uh, as, as students in the subcontinent, and even at a global level, we miss out on a lot of lessons because we don't trot history the way it can be. So we miss out the, uh, the rhythmic, uh, yeah. juxtapositions but uh, you know just moving on to to the next segment I want to dive deeper into your writing schedule I want to understand uh, on network capital and in general people want to write uh, people for as long as I have known have always want to leave behind traces of what their thought process is that's why perhaps social media is so popular um, everyone has a platform finally everyone finally has a platform people love to blog in different languages as such in India for example micro blogging you know vernacular blogging is huge people love to express um, what is a good writer according to you and how do you, how have you trained yourself over the years now 10 years right yeah, writing. Think, yeah it's a decade right yeah. no a, a good writer firstly I think is unsentimental and unromantic about writing you know it's very we always succumb I think often to this notion that writing is about it's an art and it flows into your mind like some some, some divine genius somehow you know it's just flowing through you and you have to express or whatever it's true partially but the thing is merely expressing yourself is not enough at the end of the day like any other commodity like any other package to use a term that writers don't usually use for this you have to work on it like a carpenter works on his on his on his woodwork with his tools because you have to keep hammering away you have to keep beating it into shape that's the only way your writing is going to improve merely having an idea lots of people have talent why is it that not everybody publishes because that's not enough there's a certain amount of discipline there's a certain amount of hard work that has nothing to do with the art of it that has nothing to do with the romance of writing that has nothing to do with sitting by the beach and thinking that you know you sit there with a typewriter and look over the at the sea and poetry comes to you no it's the it's the grammar and the syntax and the the hard work of you know doing what a carpenter or a cobbler does you have to do that there's a lot of hustling that comes after a book is published you know it's very i've i've seen great writers who write you know wonderful books but we live in times where the book alone is not enough people want to see the writer of the book they want to hear the writer of the book so suddenly public speaking is a is a thing because you have to go out and peddle your book it's a competitive market you know you you can't merely write a wonderful book and expect that the world will come to you no you have to go out and peddle it like a salesman peddling goods and it's unsexy and unromantic and it takes away from our sentimental notion of what writing should be or what it used to be mm-hmm. but writing was always this so what 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 do you what would writing be what was it in the past in the, i mean even in the past it was this you know look at successful writers a jane austen for example when she first began a novels were considered relatively unaristocratic they were considered like a pastime and all of that she had to send them to newspapers uh, uh, one of her novels i think was published without her name on it because you know if they thought a woman had published it there may be issues there uh, she only started making money on her novels towards the end there's one novel which wasn't published and it was after her death that somebody finally because she had already become famous by then they decided to publish it she took rejection she took lots of things that we face even today writers even then back in the day didn't have it easy and they had to focus on the craft as much as on the art which means what putting in the hours which means putting in the kind of energy and it drains you it frustrates you it's very isolating but if that's what you want to do i mean you have to put your money tell where your mouth more. is tell us more about the the craft well in my case if it's a research cycle which means you know archival work in the libraries and so on so i for example till uh, late last year i was in london Uh, I, I'd done about a 14-month research cycle there where it was literally 9, 9.30 in the morning, get to the library, 
quickly have breakfast at the Which library, library at the was British it? Library. I see. Or the School of Oriental and African Studies, sometimes Oxford, Cambridge. Depends on, on where my material is. But if, on a daily basis, I worked out of the British Library. And you get there by 9, 9.30. And then, you know, you only, every hour I'd wake up, I'd get up and sort of go out and sort of stretch my legs or whatever. But otherwise, you're sitting till the library shuts at about 8.30 in the library working because that's, there's no other, there's no getting away from that sort of commitment, which means that your only break is at lunchtime and maybe at four o'clock for a coffee or something. And the only sentences you utter in days is to the canteen lady. Your only sentence on a daily basis is how much is that coffee for or how much is a sandwich for and thank you. There's nothing else you're talking to uh, anybody because... It's a library, not a, a co-working space. Correct. And everyone's come there to do work. Nobody wants to make small talk and chit-chat mm. with you. Mm. So getting into that comes with preparing yourself mentally. It means that you have to accept that you're not going to go out much. It also means, for example, the British Library is also open on Saturdays. So, you know, on Friday nights, I pissed off a lot of my PhD colleagues because everyone would go out drinking or whatever on Friday nights, but I couldn't do it because that would mess up my Saturday morning. And I wanted to go to the library and work, and library shuts early on Saturdays. So you had to, if I wanted to go to my work, I had to make a call there, to make a, a choice there of not going out, of sacrificing a certain social engagement because this was of greater importance. So there is that kind of work. Then, of course, there is the fun. So you compartmentalize, right? So no, but let's stay on this and then okay, go sure. to the fun. Why a library and not a co-working space? Depends. So if I'm working in archives and materials, the books are available more easily in a library. They're so not available online? Uh, barely. I mean, now it's, people are starting to digitize things. So a lot is slowly getting to the internet. But still, like something like the British Library, which is generally called a copyright library. So under the law in, in Britain, any book that's published, there has to be sent. A few copies have to be sent to the British Library. Which means for centuries every book published on British soil is available in their archives. They have this huge central thing uh, made of glass where you can actually see these volumes uh, stacked up in shelves. And it's a huge resource. Books and manuscripts and original palm leaf things that, that were taken from India, which you don't find here anymore, you'll find there. Obscure books on obscure topics on India I found there rather than over here. Uh, obscure journals that no longer exist in archives here. You know, they you find you find them in abroad in foreign libraries. And there's something called the Feudatory and Zamindari India, which was a, a a newspaper for princely states. It covered everything that was happening with these Maharajas and Nawabs, and uh, it was wasn't available anywhere in India. I couldn't find it even in the British Library, and I found finally found it in the New York Public Library. I have no idea how this pertaining to such a niche segment in Indian history ended up in New York and at the University of uh, Berkeley in California. But somehow it did. And, you know, these are the places where you have to actively go and look. The writing can perhaps be done from a co-working space in the sense that once your research is done, once you've got your facts, once you've got your raw material, then it's a question of digesting it and putting pen to paper. When it comes to that stage, all you need is a quiet room. And I'm not touchy about my desk or where I am or whatever. So long as it's a quiet room, I can work out of anywhere. Uh, you're never going to find perfect ingredients are never going to find the perfect setting for writing to flow into you it's not going to happen i mean unless you have the luxury to to live like that i don't think it works like that way like any other any other field there's a certain amount of compromise there's a certain amount of uh, you know dealing with reality as it sure. is and then getting on with your day so uh, in the, at the british library for those 12 hours you were sitting and consuming knowledge assuming making notes yeah. Were you also doing writing simultaneously? I do my columns. So I have a weekly column that's been running for uh, for two and a half years in Mint Lounge. Yeah. So this, you know, a weekly column has its own challenges because <laughs> and mine is a history column. So right. I can't repeat anything. Every week has to be new. Mm. Uh, so, you know, recently one was on political violence in, in India. I read that. Tomorrow's yeah. one is on this Maharashtrian kitchen maid turned poet called uh, Janabai. Mm. 
uh, you know, so each week has to be refreshing and different so that mm. people retain their interest. Sure. The whole idea is to make history interesting and lively, so I can't repeat my themes too often. So that writing I would do from the library. So the, the columns I could sit and work out of, out of the library. But book writing, what I normally do is I finish my research cycle and then I have a separate uh, uh, period of months and months that is allocated purely to writing. So when I did my second book, for example, which was uh, in, in London in 2017, end of 2017, for about two and a half months, I think, I was chained to my desk in my room in my pajamas all day long only this going was in the, London this was in London I, see. So I did the writing in London mm. a lot of the research was done here and in London but mm. the writing so yeah two, uh, two months two and a half months I was in my room in my pajamas and how many words did you churn out in those two and a half months uh, so the first so the book altogether is 95,000 96,000 words I think so about 400 pages yeah, yeah. Uh, just under 350 yeah. I think yeah. And uh, the first draft is, I think, 70-something thousand words. So that got done. The skeletal first draft is always the, the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Once you've got that done, most of the headache is done because the book has structure by then. Right. You can augment it, you can ornament it, you can polish it. That's the secondary mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. That you can do with other things as well. But the first initial draft is where the challenge really is. And that, you know, you really have to make the time. When I was finishing my first book, I lost 12 kilos because in the final six months, because... I was waking up in the morning, sitting at my desk, and I wouldn't stir till, you know, dinner time. And all I was eating for energy was sugar, chocolate, because that keep, kept giving me sugar highs. And that was how I plodded through every day, because I decided that this book had already taken five years of my life, and I wasn't going to allow it to take more time. So I had to finish it one way or the other by 2015, mm. which meant that, you know, do or die as so Gandhi said. was this said. the same time you had the nine-to-nine job? No, so after the elections in 2014, yeah. uh, which actually is a rule, I uh, took six months off mm. to finish uh, or, or to, you know, the book in different stages. Some parts of it was in the fourth draft, fourth draft some, part of, some parts of it were third draft uh, sections, etc. So I wanted to hammer out a final sort of version. And then most of 2015, till it was actually published, I spent in polishing it, improving it. And we were, I was adding and changing and subtracting right till the day before we went to press. And much to my, my publisher's frustration, but... That's how it works, and yeah, no, you have to. And by then, I was back with Doctor Thoreau, so there was that plus editing. Yeah. But you've got to hustle if you want to get somewhere in life. <clears> you know, there's no, there's no romantic answers. I said, there's everything comes. So for the certain. craft, like what I'm hearing is that a lot of hours spent, like you would to excel in any profession. So a lot of hours researching, a lot of hours writing. But you know, in today's world, there's so many distractions, digital and otherwise. How are you able to focus for such long periods of time? You pick and choose. So mm. I don't use Facebook, for example. I, I have an account, but I barely use it. Uh, Twitter is, people just argue and fight and virtue signal all day long. So Twitter, Twitter annoys me. I just go there for my news. But the other thing is I use social media for my own purposes, which is that, you know, when I'm stuck in the library for 10 hours, 12 hours a day, my only diversion used to be Instagram. So I would often, as part of my research, come across miniature paintings and things like that. And these were lovely works, but I also, you know, since it was my only diversion, I'd put them up as an Instagram story with a funny caption. And, you know, people started liking that. So that became a diversion. So every two hours between work, I could just open Instagram, do something comical on Instagram, and come back to my very serious, heavy-lifting donkey's work with the archives and documents and so on. Instagram, in that sense, helped me balance that out. The frustration that, was otherwise, that would otherwise build up from sitting for 12 hours a day in a library quietly uh, was sort of, you know, it was mitigated to a certain extent by... Yeah this particular diversion. So I, I used it in, I suppose, a healthy way. A way that worked for you. For me. Yeah. It, so you know, rather than that overwhelming me, yeah. I used it to, you know, uh, to choose and decide how I wanted to expend my energy yeah. on it. 
Yeah. So Cal Newport defines it as d- deep work, where you're doing focused work for an extended period of time, and not like you know coming in and out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that the only way, really. Yeah. I mean, you can't. And the other thing is also you know a sense of responsibility, right? The question is how well do you want to do something? Responsibility towards towards your the work you're doing. How hmm. well do you want to do it? If you if you really want to excel, if you really want to do something at a standard that uh, is grueling, but that standard has a certain value because that's what you want to be known for or remembered for or whatever, uh, you know you have to you have to focus that way. It's easy to be superficial and it's easy to sort of uh, just, just scratch the surface because you'll still get plenty. You can still get by doing that sort of thing. But the question is, you have to choose. Do you want to be that kind of writer? Or do you want to be this kind of writer? You want to be, you know, uh, a person who's known for a sort of rigorous academic research, even if the writing is mm-hmm. is engaging and accessible, or do you want to just be a relatively floozy <laughs> writer? So, you know, my choice was very clear, which means nobody else is going to come and do it for me, right? I have to do it. And that's true of any profession. When you write, uh, are you familiar with this concept of the invisible audience? Like everyone, basically, when they write, when they perform, when they speak, when they do their job, um, they have an invisible set of people who they think are watching. Is that ki- true for you? Do you write for yourself, write for that invisible audience, somebody else? No, there is an audience, I think. And even, you know, I have this weird habit where if I'm, say, plotting a chapter or something, for the first hour or something, I just wake up and walk up and down the room talking to myself in the sense in my head or sometimes even, like, actually out there because mm-hmm. that's how your sentences flow. That's how the idea mm-hmm. takes shape and then you can sit down and start writing. Mm-hmm. So there I pretend as though I do actually have an audience and I'm giving a speech before somebody right. because that does tend to give you a, a certain amount of uh, perspective. The, the other thing with writing is that, you know, you can very easily lose yourself in your words in the sense that you can write and write and write till the cows come home. But is that the point? You're writing to communicate something, which means you have to learn to be concise. You have to learn to communicate that in, in, a, in an effective manner. Writing and writing, you know, to satisfy yourself is one thing. But are you writing to satisfy yourself? No, I'm writing for an audience. So knowing that audience is important. The entire final draft of my, my books is usually... So the, the early drafts are all what I want to put into the book. The final draft is always, how is the reader reading this? Right. The reader must have every incentive to turn every page and move on to the next. So every paragraph has to be sculpted. Every sentence has to be rounded. You can't repeat the same words in a paragraph, for example. You have to think about that because you're suddenly no longer thinking from the writer's perspective. You're thinking from the reader's perspective. Unless you do that, you're not really going to communicate well. You can write to satisfy yourself, but nobody's really going to read it. Nobody's going to pick up your book. You have to think from the other person's uh, perspective, for which you need to know the other person. You need to know your audience. So the audience matters. It's important to know, uh, you know who you're catering to and what they expect as well. I'm not, I don't want to write books that nobody reads or that nobody will sell. You know, I want to write books that people will read and people will talk about and which will engage them and which will inform their own debates and discussions and so on because what what is the point of this otherwise mm-hmm. tell me about the craft of writing then uh, art of writing i beg your pardon How, yeah. is style developed or is style can it be improved with practice it does like everything else practice is, is major there's no getting away from it you know there's uh, things you wrote at 20 may embarrass you at 30 because, you know, that's just how it is. And even a Naipaul, for example, you know, some of his early works, he himself used to find it uh, annoying that he wrote that way or he, he wrote a paragraph a certain way. All writers go through that because as you grow as a person, your writing also evolves, your style also evolves. And the other thing with style is that it, you are nourished by very many influences, not necessarily by a conscious style that you've decided to to pursue. In my case, for example, even though I'm writing about history and my 
my research and the footnotes are very academic in that sense the actual narrative is very irreverent i try and bring a certain comical element a certain irreverence to it because i told you earlier you know i don't want to us to take our ancestors too seriously or ourselves too seriously and that's important i think that that perspective is important saying that look at all of this in proportion none of this ended the world none of this made the world in some remarkable way every it everything existed within its own space that irreverence actually comes from pg woodhouse because as a kid as a as a teenager i enjoyed pg woodhouse and i loved the kind of subtle snark and subtle humor in it and that always animated my own writing and that i bring to history writing which i suppose is not very orthodox but i think that people enjoy that people are not expecting to see a historical figures talked about in an irreverent fashion especially in in a country yeah, like india especially when they grew up reading about historical figures yeah. in a very serious way and in india historical figures are always pious and proper and they're all you know monochromatic figures who could do no wrong mm-hmm. but they were human beings they did have a, a human side to them and that is what i want to highlight so there the style and the art is is it comes funnily enough from fiction uh, pg woodhouse is irreverent you know uh, comical fiction really that's where uh, that influences my style of writing the other thing is yeah it does improve over over time and as doing my first book each chapter was 15000 words to 21000 words that's the size of my master's thesis uh, so I, i had all the room to to sort of expound my ideas and the book was a 700 page book etc but when i started doing my columns suddenly i had to condense historical arguments and historical stories with all their nuance with all their detail into 1000 words and there's no getting away from it we would have arguments my editor and i over 30 words extra and things like that and there was no budging because they only had so much space in print in the newspaper so i had no option which is a good thing for me because that challenged my writing in another way to condense 20000 into 1000 to learn to be yeah. able to say things in a pithy uh non elaborate non mm-hmm. ornamental fashion and yet retain a certain vitality retain a certain energy and retain a certain spunk in your writing so it 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 activates a different part of your writing brain or your writing uh talent or whatever and you know it's important to do that you it you can never get comfortable either if you start getting comfortable in your writing because it works you become complacent mm-hmm. once you become complacent you lose it so you have to keep uh, being very aware that you know you have to keep challenging your your work and your writing and never really rest on successes of past books mm-hmm. one of the things in writing is also that it's a precarious uh, career choice if you're going full time into it which is that you know you i've had three successful books so far but you never the fourth may flop the fifth may flop the tenth may flop you may have nine successes and tenth one that is panned and reviewed horribly it does have an impact it does take a toll and it does affect you because it feels you've you know you've dedicated years to something and people criticize it in a certain way it takes away something right mm-hmm. but you have to be prepared for it yeah. and the only way to sort of stay on top of the game is to constantly keep evolving rather than getting complacent rather than getting too comfortable in your style and in your art everything has to change change is that constant when did you first get published and how i got published first in 2015 and uh, i was no, 25 no i mean even before school college oh that way yeah. oh god i wrote awful poetry as a as a teenager but that was not i mean it wasn't sentimental poetry i used to make fun of my classmates and call them flying cows and things like that which uh, <laughs> i really wrote i mean that flying cow poem was really really good sadly i gave it to the person it was addressed to and she tore it tore it and threw it out but it was a really funny poem it wasn't insulting at all it was just a, a really funny sure. thing i wish i had it 
but uh, no I, I never published in newspapers a lot of my friends for example wrote for the local uh, pune mirror for example you know the, the local paper and things like that i was never interested in that mm. uh, when the book happened the book was it I so your book was the first time the book was the first time i was being published and how did you go about uh, pitching it to the publishers or they reached out how did this happen so the funny thing is uh, in 2012 i got in touch with a relatively small publisher mm. but at that time i thought the book was ready and i'm thank thank i thank god that i didn't end up publishing that here because the book would spread much it would have ended up as a bad book mm. the fact that i gave it three more years really did change a lot because you know when you're 22 you're still young 25 you're a little older so it's a little <laughs> your your work has improved somewhat uh, so what happened is it was actually a little bit of strategic thinking i suppose which is that i had the email of the chief publisher at harper collins in india kartika and i sat up to 3 at night and sent her an email at 3 o'clock in the morning because i wanted my email to be the first thing in her inbox when she woke up in the morning okay because otherwise it would go down somewhere if i send sure. it at 4 in the afternoon it's going to disappear hmm. whereas if i send it at 3 in the morning say assume she wakes up at 8 or 9 and looks at her inbox my email is the first one she's going to see the other thing is people often bombard publishers uh, with their whole manuscripts and uh, you have to think of it from their perspective right they're getting hundreds of these every day So I didn't want to send her the whole manuscript I sent her the first 6 pages. Hmm. The first 6 pages were designed in a way to hook the reader really mm-hmm. because the book starts getting heavy towards the middle right. because it's also recording the achievements of this this queen of Travancore. So there is a lot of numbers and statistics and facts but that's not the only thing I wanted to draw the reader in and get the the reader invested in this journey to be able to handle the middle. So the beginning was this very you know it was even though I say it myself and it sounds more immodest it was designed to sort of woo the reader and and solely sort of pursue uh they meant push them into the book really so those six pages i knew would perhaps impress her and it worked by 11 the next morning when i woke up and really uh, checked my email she had already replied saying send me the first five chapters mm-hmm. and then yeah before you knew it it was a big publisher harper collins is one of the big ones mm-hmm. and i was keen on that because they have distribution and it's important i think sometimes to uh brand yourself a certain way right see i was a 25 year old non entity writing about an obscure character mm-hmm. an obscure part of uh, indian history that nobody had heard of and i had a 700 page book to pitch uh, so i needed a big company i needed a big name because that's the only way we could balance out the disadvantages i was bringing to the table and to her credit she took a, a risk with the book because i know that some people in her own marketing team thought that 700 pages is too long it would have to be priced very high which means nobody would buy it because in india you know prices do matter she managed to slice off another 100 rupees and price it at 699 rupees which was still a very expensive book uh, by indian standards and it just happened after that yeah so no we're going to discuss this and it sold so many copies yeah. um but it seems that you get a lot of work done by sending compelling emails whether it's your first <laughs> job or your first book so This is something that we are taught in business schools all the time. In fact, venture capitalists receive a lot of pitches as well. How did you go about drafting this email to Harper Collins? There was, you know, I it couldn't have been six pages as an attachment. No, of it course. was a shortish email. It wasn't yeah. too long. Yeah, but there was a there was a certain self-deprecation. There was a certain humor, and there was a certain uh, seriousness also. It's been a while, but do you remember some of it at all? I think you know there was a. Uh, I think I began saying that. So I didn't say dear Kartika you know here my name is this or whatever I began saying dear Kartika if I may and my apologies right at the f- right up front for inflicting an email of this length on you 
because you know, a sentence like that immediately yeah. sort of sits out right yeah. people will wonder okay inflict and it's not like that. a regular business boring email right like dear x it's box curiosity yeah. right yeah. i am admitting up front that i'm inflicting something on you yeah. it's self deprecatory in a way but it's yeah. also but it, it also shows your writing curiosity. style you know i mean to some extent that's the point the yeah. email is the first sample writing sample they're going to see hmm. if that doesn't like impress then they're not even going to open your attachment yeah. you know, that's just how the world is yeah. it's not that they're heartless people that's just hmm. how it is hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think that was the thing. Shashi Tharoor, I don't remember what the email said, uh, but he liked it either way. And that wasn't consciously done. It's just that I tend to write emails and letters a certain way. Yeah. Not hard copy letters, but I tend to write emails with a certain amount of uh, focus and all of that. Sure. Uh, short emails, of course, uh, they exist for everyday stuff. But if I'm writing a detail, something with some meaning to somebody, then I invest a certain amount of time in it. Uh, because, you know, in future, once upon a time, writers, their letters, etc. were what... people read to understand who the writer was yeah. in our time it will probably be our emails they read to figure mm-hmm. out who we are yeah yeah so the email matters definitely um so yeah um she wrote back to you next day 11 and then you sent her your five chapters which were ready and yeah, then then, what, then and then what happened then yeah she liked the manuscript entirely we met in delhi uh, a few months later i think most of it was done over email a contract this happened in december 2014 a contract was signed by february 2015 <laughs> May I was back in Delhi with Dr. Zarur. So after that we had face to face meetings etc and yeah by the by about December, what about the edits and so on. Yeah. And you know I had the thing is you know writers also sometimes you can be territorial right like you don't want things edited out because you worked so hard etc right. especially your first book you don't understand that editing is actually a good thing because they bringing a reader's eye separately to the manuscript. How many words are we talking about? 245,000 words 245 yeah and yeah. i thought i was being very clever because i deliberately left in a paragraph i didn't like because i thought if she insists on edits i'll say okay we'll edit this out mm-hmm. so i wanted to leave that extra bit there so that she actually didn't touch anything else that i liked and yeah she never actually asked for any major edits it was that one paragraph and a few light edits here and there uh for consistency and things so like that so for 245,000 were reduced to what it was 245,000 words in, in oh, print oh wow so yeah. it was you 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 stuck with it we stuck with it okay yeah. and how many copies did you sell We're in our 17th reprint and I think we've crossed 30 something thousand copies in three years, which is, you know, for a 700 page book, that is uh, a fairly And largely number. Indian? Yeah, mostly Indian, I think. Although I do assume that a lot of, because the book is about a Malayali queen mm-hmm. and the other advantage I had, and this is, you know, that's the thing, luck also plays a chance, uh, plays a role in all this, which is that uh, there hadn't been a book on Kerala for a very long time, for decades really. There were academic books, of course, but nothing in general history, nothing for a larger audience. So my book actually ended up filling that space. So even today, any NRI Malayali mother who wants her kids to learn about Kerala, when they go on Amazon and search for a Kerala book, mine is the first one that pops up. So that was good in terms of that. The other thing is because it's 700 pages, it also wraps up nicely as a present. Hmm. So I was very thrilled to see that when Hamid Ansari, the then vice president, went to Kerala, this was the book they gave him as a present because it just looks voluminous and heavy and very respectable, <laughs> which is, you know, another good constituency. People buy my book to present it to other people. So is it a book of history? Is it a, the Queen of Travancore? Is it a it's book history, of history? It's social history, political history, but all of it is woven through this very dramatic life of this last queen. and her feud with her sister the junior maharani and uh, it's you know my protagonist is a woman the antagonist in quotes is a woman which also was an unusual setting you're used to male kings and sultans and villains fighting it out but two powerful women in a matrilineal system where their husbands were non entities uh, is an unusual concept and i think even malayalis were startled for example in kerala 
the maharani's husband was not the maharaja he was only the consort he wasn't even dignified with the title of husband he was called the consort he couldn't address his wife by name he had to call his wife your highness mm-hmm. back in the day they couldn't live in the main palace they had to live in an outhouse and they could only visit the royal bedchamber when summoned uh, a, a great radical event of the 1910s was when the maharani of travancore starts driving in the same car with her husband and her uncle the maharaja sends her this very angry message saying how can you drive with your husband it, it breaches protocol because husband is not your equal he's your subject he can't be seen sitting next to you because that signifies equality at it was so like these these protocols were so entrenched that at feasts in the palace the maharani was served four varieties of dessert her husband got two and when he died how do you know this because you know it's it's there the, you tell me where did you find this well there's something called the uh, there's a 12 volume palace manual that governs their life in the palace how they should slumber how they should wake up in the morning how many servants should attend to them all of that uh, plus there are people who actually live there who are still alive there are people the current titular maharani of travancore who's the granddaughter of my protagonist she's a 79 year old lady who who's a painter and lives in bangalore and you know she remembers this world because when she, till she was about 10 years old she lived in the palace she's seen these splendid household guards she's seen the protocol of how her grandmother's meals were served she had grandmother barely ate anything but there had to be a dozen things in silver bowls that were put on the tray on a plantain leaf because she was the queen it wasn't up to her to say oh, i don't like this i do, i only want so much food every day it's not your choice you're not a person you're an institution it's the job of the kitchen staff 24 cooks it's their job to serve all those 12 items whether she eats it or not is not the point she is the queen she's not a an individual woman which also that was an interesting dynamic that you know that i found fascinating this where does your personality sort of eclipse get eclipsed by the institution that you are or the the larger person publicly that you are so these husbands were you know complete non entities with these with these queens and that setting itself was fascinating when malayalis hear today that they're uh, you know technically they don't i in my family for example i technically belong to my mother's family mm-hmm. so when my father passed away 6 months ago i in the old days i would not do the funeral rituals it would be his sister's family who who do the funeral rituals his sister's son he is the heir not me mm-hmm. and you know hindus have this thing where when there's a death in the family you're not supposed to go to the temple for 10 days there's a ritual pollution that comes with death and birth and events like that that doesn't apply to the wife and kids and in the royal family when the maharani's husband died when he's on the verge of death he'd be lifted with his entire court and taken out of the palace to die because he was not a member of the royal family he had no business dying in the palace and his wife and kids his royal wife and kids would not attend the funeral because he was their subject he was he may be their father but he's a private citizen of the state so this is india where we think we have one linear tradition and you know this is how indian history was and hold on this one sliver of the indian coast you have matrilineal queens where polyandry is allowed where the husband is a nobody and the women are the ones who have so much control and authority barely learn about it we barely learn about the fact that divorce was perfectly normal for upper caste people we never learn about the fact that till the 1940s women in kerala went around topless because toplessness was considered perfectly normal just like men do even today you go to a kerala temple to enter you need to take off your shirt even today for men back in the day women had to do it as well you couldn't enter with your with your torso covered but you know these things change and very quickly we forget we forget that we think our morality of today was always the was was always there that this tradition has somehow come down to us in an untouched un uh, changed format but right. it's actually changed very drastically mm-hmm. you can go back to kerala today and tell people that their tradition suggests that everybody should walk around topless including their mothers and sisters and people will probably hit you mm-hmm. but that was the reality 70 years ago and that's just how it is um for for, for this particular book like this fact you stumbled upon in the british library or in the palace itself 
Because so, this depth of research and the underlying story is just fascinating. And I see it as a common thread amongst all your books. And the first question that comes to my mind, at least, is how, does, how did you stumble on this fact? Were you looking for it or was this something that just jumped so out? So a good historian or an aspiring good historian would always look at as many sources as possible. So for me, that included the Delhi archives, where you know, the government of India records are kept. The British archives, where the Secretary of State, who was the British cabinet minister, their records are his copies of the documents that were sent to him, they kept there. Uh, the private papers of assorted viceroys, British residents, British grandees, their private papers also value. So British resident may say something official in a record, but then he'll write a private letter to his mother where he'll have much more gossip, much more of the actual texture of the story, which doesn't go into an official record. Uh, then there are diaries of these historical figures. This man, as I said, the, the father of Malayalam literature, who I was alluding to earlier, this was a man who wrote great Sanskrit poetry, wrote great stuff in Malayalam, uh, organized some of Kerala's first textbooks in the 19th century for school children. When I discovered this letter from the 1870s where he's talking about weed and marijuana, you know, that was a private uh, affair. That's not a state document, but he's written it down in, in his own name. Uh, so you've looked at all these things to get as complete a picture as possible. Plus you interview people who've, uh, who've seen that world, if they're still alive. Because they, the documents can give you the hard facts of history. Interviews and anecdotes bring life to that history. You can take it with a pinch of salt, but if you compare them and you figure out that you know, this thing fits this, then you've understood that where you, can, you can figure out where there's exaggeration and where there's fact. And uh, yeah, in that case, you know, in that sense, I had her private papers of these Maharani's, of the senior Maharani, these official records of the British, records of the Travancore government when she was in power and after she was, uh, no, no, she was no longer in power. All of this together gives you this, this degree of depth. And that, you know, is important. The, the other thing is, you know, again, we assume that policy is made in these cabinet rooms where people sit and, you know, judge these things solely on objective grounds. No, even today, egos, personality uh, clashes, uh, who you like, who you, does, who you don't like, what gossip you've heard, all of this informs decisions. You know, the way government will choose who to sit on a who should sit on a commission is not necessarily because that's the best candidate with the best qualifications, but maybe that candidate has the right ideological leanings. That's a personal choice. It's not merely a cabinet room that's deciding this. There are personal elements that come into this. There may be a journalist you ignore because that journalist was rude to you ten years ago, and now that you have the upper hand, you ignore that journalist. That's not politics, so that's not public decision. That's a private vendetta that you've brought into the public sphere. This existed even then. The fun, funny thing about British imperialism is that we think it was their armies, etc., that controlled India. It was information. It was solely having information about Indians. That is how they controlled the Indian subcontinent. They're the ones who did censuses because they wanted exact numbers. They started doing caste censuses because they wanted to figure out how many people are in each caste. Then they said, oh, these many people are Hindus, these many people are Muslims. Till then, Hindus didn't know how many their numbers mm -hmm. were. There was no concept of majority, minority. Mm -hmm. Control was exercised that way. By creating that concept, divide and rule happened, for which you need information. You need censuses. You need to go out there and find out. In the royal families, one of the ways they controlled these Maharajas was by completely, constantly spying on their private lives. They knew where the Maharaja was going, who he was seeing, who the Maharani, who, whose apartment the Maharani went to at 3 in the morning in Germany. Everything was watched. How many rats were being sacrificed at a black magic puja. All of this was watched because you control your subordinates by knowing more about them. It's intelligence gathering. And there, the private and the personal and the public becomes, the line is very blurred. Everything informs everything else. And that's how power actually negotiates itself even today. It's not... It's not people sitting in stiff suits in boardrooms taking the best possible decision. Which is why sometimes on Twitter, 
and people argue that this is right you know we should do this because this is the right thing to do the world doesn't work like that it works on compromise it works on consensus if you want to win something there you have to give something here yeah. it's give and take between political parties if you want this party to support you with this bill you've got to support them on the other bill that they are proposing in parliament it may not sit with your ideology well but you have no option because you want their support with this other important thing it's constant engagement and consensus and i've seen this in parliament abraham lincoln was a champion of this and that's how that's how the world is built which is why this black and whiteing of the world i find it very annoying because that that only comes from living in an ivory tower if you lived on the ground you know people say after this uh, a lot of ultra leftists for example would say the country has changed before our eyes they're voting for fascists and so on they have so many reasons to vote you know there's for example an rss man in north india will help an old lady go get her old age pension he will fill the form for her he will get that done for her and that is why she's voting for him it's not because she cares about ideology or whatever there are various reasons why people vote for them a number of people who vote for a certain party are not voting for cowlinchings or for pe- people to come and police their daughters clothes but why are they still voting because there's another reason there's another something they're getting out of that and that's how the world works you can't you can't villainize someone for doing politics well that's politics Fair and that's just how the world works so this has always been a constant of of uh, of politics of of writing of history that the world is not about who makes the right choices it's how those choices are reached had arrived at and you know how much of a compromise and consensus you can build that is how the world works and that i think is is what my books also try to suggest that it's not about right and wrong even when you look at history you're not sitting in judgment and saying this was a good king and that was a bad king no they all existed in their context and they all had different reasons and different uh motivations for doing things the way they did just as we have today yeah so the first book led to the column in mint or did, how did, how did that work out because uh, i'm looking at the timelines you've been writing it for 3 years and uh the first book came out in 2015 late yeah december 2015 so the timing was rough and the column started in 16 so yeah it was actually so the book led to the columns they I reached suppose, out yeah the book won the sahitya academy yuva puraskar yeah, in 2017 you know, yeah. were the winner yeah and i i think what happened with the mint thing was they sent me ram guha's book to review and i wrote a, a review for it which i think they liked and at that time there was this columnist called akar patel in mint lounge who was yeah. leaving yeah. and then you know the editor sanjukta wrote to me saying you know akar is leaving would you be interested in having a weekly column And I said weekly sounds a bit challenging but then I thought you know if uh, someone gives you a good challenge you might as well try and chew on it yeah. you know and then make the most of it so yeah. that's how it started and I'm pleased to say that I've never missed a column you so. know that's amazing it like from your life it seems that how much do you stick to timelines routines again going against the popular perception that creative people can take their own timelines you have as much as strict timeline as anybody Yeah, I mean if it's my project I can be flexible in terms of timing so but other people are involved where other people's money is involved where there are deadlines because something has to go to the press so that it can be distributed in advance to cities uh, across the country that's not in my hands I can't fiddle around with that uh, you know I'm getting paid to do something you know they are putting their money there it's my and job fate, to deliver it's like and it's, it's, it's my job it's, to deliver yeah. and there they can be no compromise yeah. so even just now for example I'm traveling to promote my third book and you know i've had to do my columns in advance and send them which is extra work for me because between everything else i have to find time and write but there's no point whining about it that's just how life is and you know if someone's put that kind of faith and money and energy and uh, support into your career you've got to reciprocate that's how everybody builds i think it's a give and take again you can't take people for granted so this whole notion that you know deadlines are some sort of 
uh, hassle for good work. No, actually, deadlines, I think, discipline you. Deadlines, without thing. deadlines, it's very hard. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, before we started that you're now trying to build yourself as a full-time writer who writes all the time. And this is great for you, right? Like having a weekly column means that more people know about you, your work. And then when your books come out, the curiosity will lead to book sales, in yeah. a way. Plus the money that you make out of the column. So you are doing or you hopefully will do very, very well, well even from the financial crossed. standpoint. Fingers crossed. No, I, I tend to plan things. I'm a planner at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And planning, I think, helps because this notion that writers must live in poverty and suffer and all of that is slightly over-sentimental. I mean, today's world, if you want to live at least decently, not in an extravagant way, you have to plan. You have to plan your finances. You have to invest in the right places. You have to make sure that, you know, you have that basic income <coughs> so that tomorrow if you want to take, take a year off and, you know, sit and just write, mm. you should have the freedom to do it. Yeah. And that is what I'm aspiring for. You know, I turn 30 next year and, I've, you know, I've set a goal that by 30, this is the amount of money I want invested. This is the amount that based on which I have a certain assured income every month. Yeah. Whether I spend it or not is not the point. If I'm chained to a desk, I may probably not spend it. But having it takes away a massive amount of tension from your head. Yeah. Because, you know, and the other thing is, you know, if you come from families where, for example, you don't have to take care of your parents. They've got their own income. They've got their resources. Then you have privilege. Then you have the privilege of being able to do your own thing. So you shouldn't squander it. Because when you have it, use, make the most of it. That's how you grow. Because that's how, you know, you, you shape your own future. Uh, responsibilities, etc., will pile up eventually. So, learning to handle that and making the most when you have the opportunity is important. So, and planning is one way to to go about that. But you know, I mean, I recently stumbled upon a person who takes one year off every seven years. Basically, lots of work, and his philosophy is that uh, if you don't take time out to really absorb, reflect, you won't be able to produce new things. Do you agree with this philosophy? I'm not sure when you've taken time out to absorb and what's your uh, rejuvenation uh, mine, mine is also highly planned in the sense that, so when I was in London doing my, my research on the second book, for example, so I'd uh, work, 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 work. What's the say, second book about? We, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. The second book is called uh, Rebel Sultan. The first is called The Ivory Throne, Chronicles mm -hmm. of the House of Travancore. The second is called Rebel Sultans, the Deccan from Kilji to Shivaji. Because the Deccan is this space that sort of gets, uh, when we talk about Indian history, we focus on the Mughal Empire. And uh, then we focus on the Marathas who came from the Deccan and sort of destabilized the Mughal Empire and took on and you know, became the next big force till 1818 when the British finally defeat the Marathas. But what's interesting is before the Mughals enter the Deccan area, which is just uh, south of the Narmada, you can say, south of Gujarat onwards, but north of Tamil Nadu, that face of the peninsula, that is the Deccan. So before Shivaji and the Marathas and before the Mughals, there was this huge, interesting set of Persianate, Shia, largely Shia sultanates that were not interested in the Mughal Empire or the Mughal Emperor. They looked to the Shah of Iran as their, as their preceptor and as their leader. And therefore, there was this huge uh, influx of Persian culture. Even in, in a Hindu empire like Vijayanagar, they flaunted Persian clothes. That's what the men and women wore there. There's this famous bronze of Krishna Devaraya, the most glamorous emperor of Vijayanagar, this great Hindu warrior. Who, and this bronze is in the Tirupati temple, he's wearing a Turkish hat because that was fashionable at the time. Uh, a lot of art, a lot of sculpture shows the amount of Persian influence that came in because Persia was fashionable. We call it soft power today, right? Where your culture has a certain value and people want to imitate and emulate it. Uh, the Persian language was the language of diplomacy in India till the 1830s because that's just how powerful and influential it was. So this, the second book is about the Deccan. So when I was 
doing the second book, uh, say I do a cycle of research and work for say three, three weeks or four weeks, and then I take a week-long holiday somewhere else in Europe, disappear into Italy, disappear into some other place, and just enjoy myself there. And you know, catch up with a friend. If a friend normally it's a friend who's flying to America, for example. We agree to meet, say, in Rome or Florence or one of those places. Spend a week there. I'd go exploring or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my third book, do you do any writing when when you're on these? No, unless it's my columns. I do my columns because yeah. that is unavoidable. But no, no, no reading, writing, no. or such. And usually, in these days, when I travel, I don't take my laptop. Hmm. I only do what can be done over the phone. Everything else can wait because this is. I mean, as you said, otherwise your mind gets oversaturated. Yeah. You can't try and do everything all at once. You got to get new creative ideas. Yeah, it's wise to also give your brain some time to relax. And as someone, so what who, is that time for you? Um, how often do you take a break? It doesn't seem like you do very much. No, I do. I mean, I, I I won't overstate the 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 amount of work also because what happens is so recently in May, for example, I took about seven days and went off to Germany. I went to Berlin to meet some friends, which was fun. I mean, I had a conference I attached to it, so I had some formal reason to go. But you know, I had a a good time for four or five days over there, just doing nothing, just hanging out with friends and things like that. Which then, by the time I came back, I head back into my work uh, without any stress because my brain. And what got work was that? Uh, I think the edits the, on my third book. Yes, tell us about the third book. Which is called book. the Courtesan the Mahatma and the Italian Brahmin Tales from Indian History. Yeah. Would you mind translating this because a lot of our audience are non-Indians. They wouldn't fully get the yeah. words. Yeah, so the 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 title is the Courtesan the Mahatma and the Italian Brahmin the Mahatma as you know most people call Gandhi uh, a Mahatma this great soul who liberated India. But in my world the Mahatma in the title refers to this man called Phule. who was one of the most polemical writers of the 19th century long before gandhi went to see the king of england in a loin cloth fully showed up at the banquet where queen victoria's grandson was the chief guest wearing a torn uh, shawl and tattered clothes because he wanted to make a statement that people in that banquet hall were not representative of india and that the duke would have to come out and look at the streets and the people on the streets to really understand real india this was a man who challenged the caste system you know caste was a very oppressive institution in this country and uh, the brahmins the highest the priestly class in pune where he lived which was the seat of orthodoxy in western india uh, they once said that you know as per the old scriptures they were superior because they were born from the head of the cosmic creator and this man turns around and says does that mean the cosmic creator menstruated through the mouth because he was capable of asking very polemical questions of really unsettling the 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 noble the nobility of the time and that sort of i mean you look into indian history and i find that there were always people who did this the notion that asking difficult questions asking inconvenient questions that this is something that came with modernity is not true uh whether you look at some what we call bhakti literature which is a lot of poetry couched in divine languages talking about god etc but the wording is about god there is god and there is a certain amount of devotion in it but it actually couches very radical ideas it has strong women characters who were not happy with marriage and husband and lives like that they left that and they used god to protect themselves god allowed them to get away from and talking about god allowed them to get away from the shackles of family and they managed to do their poetry they managed to put out ideas that were pretty radical for their time whether it's the 12th century the 15th century even in the 19th century so indian history is full of characters like this it's full of we this notion that all our ancestors were thinking pious thoughts all day long and they were these you know monotonous uh, you know, wonderful people who couldn't put one foot wrong it's again it's not human that's not how human beings behave and that is something i also try to question through the book which is that all these historical figures had human failings and weaknesses and human quirks and the italian brahmin as well the italian brahmin is a case an example you know we think the brahmins are this very like proud untouched uh, you know uh, traditional group of people 
But look at uh, the Brahmins are the ones who served all the Muslim sultans as their ministers. Because they understood that to survive, you deal with power. You come to understandings with power. When the British came, they called the British, you know, white people are considered mlechas or outcasts. They are beyond the pale of caste. So on the one hand, they called them mlechas. On the other hand, they were working as gumastas and secretaries and bureaucrats for these very white rulers. You know, so you ritually call them lechas, but in all practical for all practical purposes, you come to an understanding with them. And you realize that if I have to survive, I have to collaborate and I have to get through this. And they had ways of resisting it also. They used to get into the system and then use the system against the colonizer. Right. So Indian history has got these characters. It's got originality. It's got vitality. It's not people who were trying so desperately to protect tradition. This whole let's protect tradition comes from a place of insecurity because... If you're in a secure, confident place, you're making tradition every day. Yeah. You're contributing to culture. You're, you're not afraid that someone's going to come and you know, uh, water down your culture. You're not scared of things. That cultural confidence existed in, in, in India until the colonial era, until the Victorians really came and demoralized Indian society across the board. Uh, and that is something I try to highlight in the essays in this book because these are each essay is on average about four to five pages. How is this book is structured as essays? How is it structured? It's structured as 61 essays, all mm. of them illustrated. In fact, there are 65 illustrations, beautifully done by Priya Kurian. And the idea is, you know, at events, for example, where I talk, etc., people say that, oh, they found the talk very interesting, but they're intimidated by heavy history books. So this is my effort to sort of build a new constituency for history. So it's got each essay is about five pages on average. Some are even shorter than that. So this is for that reader who's interested in history but is intimidated by heavy tomes. This is for that reader so they can pick it up, dip into an essay. After four or five pages, it's over. You can put the book to the side, go back to your regular life, come back and open any page, dip into another so essay. So these are not linked? These, these are not linked. I see. They, I mean, they, they, they seek, they're divided thematically. So they're before the British era and tales from the British era. And then there's finally a long essay at the end, which I call the afterword. But otherwise, you know, it's just uh, a broad collection of interesting human interest stories of, you know, interesting episodes, uh, the Kama Sutra, you know, mythology, uh, interesting characters like this Italian who shows up as a Jesuit and as a missionary and decides that he's going to pretend he's a Brahmin and starts wearing the sacred thread of the Brahmins and starts dressing like a, a Hindu monk in saffron clothes, uh, learns Indian languages and pretends the Bible is a lost Veda. And then <laughs> all of this was happening in the 17th century. Uh, there's this Maratha King Shivaji's nephew and you always think that the Marathas were great custodians of Hindu pride or whatever but this man writes uh, a play where he lampoons the caste system and turns it around completely and with an untouchable woman spouting philosophy and, and dharma and all of these concepts of, in, of Indian philosophy while the Brahmin is completely besotted and in love with this lady head over heels and only thinking in terms of lust mm-hmm. uh, so you know, there is humour, there is life there is so much out there that we, we could discover and we could learn from we're doing ourselves a disservice by not doing it. So the third book is for people who have an interest in knowing about the past, but who are intimidated by big books. So this is for you to come in, form an appetite for history, and hopefully the next time you see a heavy book in the library that's on history, or a heavy book in a bookstore that's on history, if you enjoyed this, you'll give that book a chance. You know, there are many common commonalities among your books, your columns. The one that we are most fascinated by is power. Because power manifests in boardrooms, in offices, uh, in the annals of history. What is power? Hmm. Power is one of those things, right? Everybody aspires to it. But once you have it, most people don't know what to do with it. And then, you know, there's this downward spiral from there trying to hold on to it. And, you know, understanding power is important to know what to do with it. Power is not the end in its own right. It's means to an end. That's why, you know, why is it that politicians are always battling over ideology, at least paying lip service? Because at the end of the day, 
unless you have something to guide you you don't know what you're going to do with power you may win elections and you may win power in states and in the national assembly and so on but if you don't have some guiding ideology you're going to have no clue as to what on earth you're going to do with that power but power is also that one constant in human history you know power is the root i think of human civilization itself you know there's yuval harari talks about how fiction plays such a big role in in human society which is you know if you think in the indian context a malayali who lives in the southwestern tip of india what does he have in common with a kashmiri far in the north who's got his light eyes and fair skin and the malayali has a completely different appearance and a different lifestyle and a different religion and a different way of life and 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 food habits and everything how do you make them fight at the border as indians you have something called nationalism and this is on on an academic or an intellectual level nationalism is a fiction the other big fiction we have is currency it's not worth the paper it's printed on but we've all agreed to this fiction that this particular paper means 500 rupees this particular paper means 2000 rupees it's fiction it actually has no value but because we have agreed that it has value it has value it's on the basis of various fictions that power survives that power builds builds itself on ideology it builds itself on fictions like this because at the end of the day human beings are creating societies and creating things this human appetite to leave something behind motivates us to seek power to seek uh, some sort of uh, advantage or influence over other people because we want to shape something we want to leave something behind but power is also especially in the context of indian history it's a constant because it also goes along very strongly with violence you know we now assume that now we have institutions where you know people fight it on largely in assemblies and halls and they may throw things at each other and throw paper planes and behave in a in a rowdy fashion but that's really far more civilized than what things were even till in the 1870s when the british were still blowing people out of cannons because that is how they wanted to project their power they knew they were foreigners in this in this country in in an alien country how do you sustain power first you have to get the hard power which is the military aspect of it so you corner territories you corner manpower you corner economic resources but that's not enough you need to have legitimacy that's the other side of power you need to find a way to justify why you have the power so they come up with this notion of we are here to civilize india so what do you do you start making all the pagans of india look like they lost in the in the stone age really with their with their cults and their you know sorted millions of gods who are and the gods themselves and they don't have books and they don't have uh, a single sole source of authority they're all over the place and it says you guys are still stuck in some primitive stage we are here to civilize you that gave them legitimacy at least in their own mind that you know we are going to show you how to live today we we need legitimacy that comes from the constitution you know all of this legitimacy is the other side so the british for example they would blow people out of cannons because occasionally to sustain their power they had to make a demonstration of violence because unless you demonstrated violence the edifice would come collapse very quickly when what time period are we talking about 1870s 1870s yeah, british blew off in 18, in 1873 to be exact i think there was a rebellion somewhere not sure if it was in the punjab somewhere up north and one of the methods used was yeah blowing people person out of a out of a cannon i mean not literally out of the cannon they tied to the mouth of the of the mm-hmm. gun and uh, they basically so it isn't just a comical image i've no, seen not. this in asterix no it's not yeah. it actually happened as recently as that it's not even that long ago mm-hmm. 150 years is not very long ago Nothing. and uh, legitimacy you know i often give the example of this malayali king called martanda varma who in the 18th century he founds travancore this hindu state of travancore first he needs the hard power so he has to conquer territory for that there's nothing hindu about it or nothing orthodox about it he gets his weapons from the east india company he gets a dutch prisoner of war to start training his troops in the military western fashion he gets mercenaries from tamil nadu so he's conquering malayali territory with foreign soldiers once he's conquered he's got his hard power he's got his you know power entrenched in these societies 
but he's still an invader he's still an outsider so the next thing he needs is legitimacy so then he discovers god so one day he goes up to his tutelary deity in the temple and he lays his sword very ceremoniously at the, at the feet of this deity and says i surrender my conquest you what a spiritual act i'm here after i'm only going to rule this kingdom as god's regent on earth very convenient because suddenly you know till yesterday you could criticize the king for his policies now you can no longer criticize this invader because suddenly everything is god's property so how can you criticize god this is an orthodox era people won't criticize the divine and the almighty so very quickly through a strategy he legitimizes himself by donating his kingdom to a god and ruling in god's name then he creates this court culture and this whole protocol to dignify the throne and this you see across the world whether it's in europe whether it's in russia you know this building of protocol because that creates a distance between your nobles and you you start becoming special royal blood becomes special so power is sustained not only with legitimacy but by also creating a certain romantic distance the king is no longer a human being he's some sort of special person and you have to worship that why do they do it because they are aware having one power the hard way they also know that somebody else with the hard resources can do the same thing they can come swallow you up use legitimacy create a new narrative and last for the next 200 years knowing this means that you have to keep reinforcing power every day with legitimacy every day with at least the appearance of legitimacy there are great dictatorships in the world where they have this this they feign and they have these fake elections where you know people win with their 99% uh, the famous story of there's a famous <laughs> saying of bhutto in pakistan where he won one of these rigged elections and he was very embarrassed that they hadn't had a, they hadn't projected a more realistic margin of victory by giving him such a large victory it was very obvious that it was rigged so he said you should have at least have left some gap between my victory margin and the total because the, we could have pretended it was an actual uh, he actually uh, said it and there's it, it's an apocryphal tale but it's very yeah. likely because he won by this completely impossible majority so it was rigged and it was very obvious it was rigged and this happens in african countries and so on even today but you need that smoke screen of legitimacy you need to feel like it's happening in turkey you need elections you may be the only candidate in russia you may be the only candidate all other candidates are handicapped by by various constraints that you inflict on them but you need that election process to happen because your legitimacy comes from it right. so what from what interests me is not just power but that constant yearning for legitimacy to make it look like you've earned your place and that power is justified but at the end of the day as i said most people once they have the power they have no idea what to do with it and that is the ultimate human failing this is that attractive good that's put out there in this in this tower and you're told that you must go and find it and put get your hands on this great gem and this great jewel once you've had it once you've got this sparkling diamond if you swallow it you will die you can't wear it on your head and walk around what is the point of it that's why most people stumble yeah i know we began this podcast with you calling power o a fickle mistress <laughs> is that right yeah yes. and we're ending with such a profound note you know this is applicable and i see it every day in business settings how fickle power can be um you know we'll do a longer see the deeper dive on this but this has been fascinating manu i mean one of the goals for uh, for this network capital podcast is to essentially bring people from all walks of life all political spectrums all social spectrums and talk about their career choices because just sharing this um would leave others with insights so many of us want to be writers and i don't know if you agree that you're an entrepreneur in the making as well your product <laughs> is your book you sort your product market fit with your audience you know as i said i'm not one of those romantic types who takes offense at these words some writers will you know completely find it a, they don't defend ghastly to be referred to as entrepreneurs or whatever but it's true at the end of the day this is the world is a marketplace yeah and there's no getting away from that you even exchange of ideas yeah. there has to be a demand there has to be a supply and at least on network capital we are always interested in the interconnectedness of knowledge people so it was fascinating going from international relations <laughs> uh, 
to politics, to policy, to writing. Uh, this has been fascinating. We'll do a follow-up soon. Thank you, Manu. Thank you for having me. Thank you.